Hello and welcome to the Together for the Common Good podcast channel. My name is Jenny Sinclair, and this is a podcast where we explore what the common good means in practice and how it can help us work towards civic and spiritual renewal. I'm the founder and director of the UK Christian charity Together for the Common Good. In this series, we're showcasing a set of nine lectures bringing alive what the common good means in terms of responsibility, political participation in civic life, human freedom, economy, the dignity of work, people and planet, and social peace. In this third episode, the third lecture in the series is given by Edward Haddis, who's an expert in Catholic social thought. His career took him from financial journalism with Reuters and the Financial Times to teaching and writing about Catholic ethics as a research fellow at Blackfriars Hall in Oxford. Edward is a convert to Catholicism from Judaism and a real scholar. I invited him to address the impact of modernity on human freedom and to explore whether in the modern world we can truly be who we were created to be. He addresses this question at a time and in a culture where that is becoming more and more difficult. He's well-tuned into the reality of what is actually going on culturally and economically. The stories he tells convey his passion for humanity. I hope you enjoy what Edward has to say in this lecture called Just Being on the Dignity and Divine Calling of the Human Person. Thank you. Um, Thank you very much for that kind introduction. In fact, you cover about half of what I'm going to say, but I'll I'll try to say it in a somewhat different way. Um, so the, the title was uh, that was given to me here was was just being, and actually I volunteered to to, to do this because um, we don't I think think about being often enough. Um, theologians think about it, as I'll say in a minute. Um, that I think that when we talk about human beings we tend to focus on the human part and not on the being part. So I'm going to reverse that tonight. I will talk quite a bit about what it means to be human, but I want to frame it as thinking about what it means to be a human being, because being, existence, essence, is is central to the way that Christian theology has developed over the years and philosophy. And and I think it gives us an insight um, into what's wrong in contemporary societies, we have a misunderstanding or a misappreciation of being. So why don't we start with a very basic question of what is being? Um, it's a great question, but there are not any good answers. Um, there are simple answers that end that way. We can start with the sort of uh, the confession of being that God gives to Moses when he asks, um, uh, for a name of, 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 of the, this um, unspeakable God. And um, at least in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, God answers, I am, I am. Um, so I think in some sense, and this has certainly been the tradition, um, that being is something that has to do with God. God is, whatever it is we mean by being, God is more of it. Um, and we also think about things that are. That's the, you know, from the verb to be. So, you know, all things, acts, descriptions, ideas. And then more modern philosophers have thought about why is there something rather than nothing? 
what is this is that we have? Why? We, we might wonder um, that there is anything. Obviously, um, you couldn't wonder if you weren't one of that things that was, but it's worth wondering about that too. So it's a great big theme. I'm not going to go farther into this, but I will while I go a little farther into it, which is um, to talk about what Thomas Aquinas says. Um, one of the things he says about God is that God is something which for all beings is the cause of their being. So we have the beings, the human beings, the being of this microphone, the being of, of, of this lovely cathedral. And at some way, um, God is the source of the, not just of them, but of the fact that they are. Um, is that perfectly clear? If not, we'll keep going. Um, I'm not going to try and get farther than that, but I want to say um, why this relationship of God and all beings, including human beings, is particularly relevant because um, we want to be human, human beings, in the best way possible, to be as much as we can in some way. And I think this is, as I say, a great question for our age. Because one of the things you'll notice is that there's a question that a lot of people give a negative answer to. And that's the question of do things and experiences that we have, does it make sense? Does stuff have a value? Do our lives have a value? Or is everything just random, pointless, stupid, even silly? You know, the great French writer and philosopher uh, Camus, Albert Camus in the 20th century, said that the only important question was the question of suicide. Why should I not kill myself? What's the point of being alive? Well, if you're sitting thinking philosophy and you're on the edge of thinking, no point of being here, then there's something that's gone wrong with your sense of having come from God. That is to say, you've lost it. You don't have it. If you think of your being as something that God has given you, for you, then it's going to look very different. And I think that um, we can use Thomas's suggestion to try and get at that idea. Because what he is saying is that all beings are caused by God. That, that is that they come from God's will, from his action, the fact of being. And that means that all things and all experiences, they have something divine about them. Their first cause, Thomas says, is God. And God, of course, is not random or pointless or stupid. Then neither, if God isn't, then neither is anything stupid or pointless that is, that has being. Everything has a reason, a purpose to it. And there is no just being, the title of my talk, in the sense of just that we use to mean merely. There's no just merely being. Um, when something is, it is there because of God, it comes from God. And as Christian theology teaches us, as Christian teaching, it's going back towards God. And that's true of every being, everything that is. It's true of rocks, of flies, of leopards, of microphones. Um, but I think that's explained, it's even more true of people. But before I do that, I want to talk about 
this idea, because we live in a very secular age. I mean, I'm talking a cathedral, uh, but it's, um, it is a secular age. But I don't think you have to be Christian to appreciate this not just na- nature of being, um, not merely being. You don't even have to be a monotheist or necessarily very religious or spiritual. You just have to see the world in a certain way. Camus, when he asked that question, eventually he says that there is an answer, there is a point to being, and he was not quite a believer. Um, And that way is to say somehow, yes, to be, to be in this created world, in this world that I am in, in these relationships with others and with the world, to be is good. And I will give you a homely example of this, which is my two grandsons, one is age three and a half and the other's almost two. I watch them with delight, of course, I love them, but I also watch them with metaphysical curiosity because you know, sometimes they're sad, sometimes they're happy, but they're always there, they're always being, they're alive. They're being themselves, they're doing whatever they are. They're, when they're walking, sleeping, angry, they're always just there. They're uninhibited in their being. No one has told them they're not worth anything. Contrary, their parents try and help them be who they are want to be. Um, and so watch, I watch little children and the wonder of being is hard to avoid. Um, you don't have to have God to see that, the wonder of being. All you have to do is, as it were, open your eyes to those little children. And if we start there, then we can start uh, to start to see that there is never a mereness about being. Um, and it's the rocks and the tables and the flies and the leopards and the microphones. All of it can fill us with the wonder, can bring us closer now in a Christian tone to God. They're there wonderful just because they are just because they have being. Now, adults have being, but it gets a little more complicated, which brings me to humans. Um, Because we are, as you may have noticed, different from rocks and tables and so forth, from everything. To be a human being is special in a lot of ways, but I'm gonna talk about two of them, two distinctly human ways of being. The first I've already mentioned, that's the wonder. We wonder about everything. I can wonder about, whether things are random or purposeful, as I just did. Flies never do that, rocks never do that. I can wonder whether my grandsons would like some ice cream this afternoon. Answer, generally, yes. And I can wonder about those flies that I just mentioned. Why are they flying? How do they get up there? And this everything that we can wonder about um, is one-sided. The flies don't wonder back, um, nor does the ice cream. And eventually my grandsons will wonder back as they get older, but it's only humans who have this. Um, and um, sometimes these, this wonder, this mystery is very practical. Um, as my grandson says, why is Dada angry? Um, is he tired? He's been trying to understand these things. And he's doing that very basic human thing trying to wonder about how the world makes sense. And um, so what we are as humans, among other things, is things that wonder. We are, to use a word that doesn't often associate with wonder in the modern world, but should be, 
and certainly is in the philosophical tradition, we are rational. That's what reason does. It tries to understand and tries, when it tries to understand, always should step back and see the wonder of it all. So when a philosopher says that we are rational animals, well, that idea is that we are full of wonder. And this means that even when we do things that other animals do, we do them in a uniquely human way. Some animals keep warm, some animals just, you know, do things to keep warm, some animals do things for mating purposes, they put on displays. So humans do the same thing, they wear clothing, but our clothing's never like that. Um, we think about our clothing, we wonder what we should wear in a way that no animal could. We've had fashions, clothing styles that change. And our clothing has a social and psychological meaning. I express who I am by what I wear. I'm, today I'm in lecturer clothing. Um, that's who I'm expressing who I am. When I was uh, in finance, I was in money man clothing, wore ties. Um, but I also express my personality. I'm an extrovert or an introvert. I'm a man or a woman. That's not my personality, but that's one of the things we express in our clothing. And when you think about this, how do we know that this is my lecture clothing? Well, it's not just up to me. And this brings me back to what was mentioned in Paul's introduction, that um, our expression in our clothing is not just something we make up. This is the, whatever it means in terms of saying something about our being. It comes in a clothing language that is set in my time and place. I just came up from Oxford and I can tell you the clothing language here in Lincoln is slightly different from the clothing language in Oxford. So I'm a little puzzled by some of the things people wear. What are they trying to say? Because I don't come from here, I don't live here, and I would take a little while to learn that particular language. Um, so this is a very important point because it starts to make you understand what being human is that our desires, our choices, our responsibilities, they're ours. It's me who wonders, but they're also, they're, but they are never solitary. We can only be fully human beings within human communities. Aristotle says that only beasts, monsters, and, 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 and gods can live in solitude. My grandsons, who are so little, they find out who they are in the community of their family. Um, and human communities come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. These days, we used to have nuclear families. Now we have these sort of nuclear fission and the families are divided. So we have sub-nuclear families and nuclear families and extended families and neighborhoods and nations, all the way up to the whole community or communion of all humanity past, present, and future. So not only are we rational animals, we are social or political animals. That is to say, we live in some kind of society or polis community, um, and we are uniquely social and rational. So we are the least merely, the least just being of all created beings. You can exclude angels, but that will take me far afield. So you might say, wow, that's great. I hope you say that. 
um, to be human, to be the most being that there is in creation should be a really good thing. But there is the second thing that I want to talk about, our distinctness of human, which is we are also the only creatures who can be bad. And this is really important for thinking about social teaching, the idea of how we live in this world, is if all we were was good, there would be no problems. We wouldn't actually need this church to try and make peace with God over our sins. But we actually not only can be bad, but always are bad. Each one of us on our own does bad things, has bad thoughts, makes bad choices. But remember, because we're social, that we also have communities that have a kind of existence of their own that are good. The existence is good. They are good, but also they are bad. Um, there's the metaphysics of evil I'm going to skip over here. I'll just say that rocks cannot be bad. We can be angry at them. They're in our way. They hurt us when we trip over them. But they're not really bad. Not even dogs, even though you say bad dog. They're not really bad. They just do what they do. But only humans are bad. That's part of the wonder of our being, but not a good part. So we have to learn. And we're always learning about being what we should be, which is good. Being is good. And we want to be that way. When we are bad, we take away from our being. So we, to do this, we want to be just. And now the other side of just being comes in. What does it mean to be a just human being? Um, what does it involve? Well, roughly speaking, and again, we get into philosophy, it means treating everyone and everything in the world justly. That is, as he, she, or it, it may be for created world, deserves. But what is it that I or you or we or they or the world actually deserve? What is it, what is good for X to have and why? Now, um, these are hard questions, of course. I mean, you can't get a YouTube video, you can get a YouTube video how to repair a microphone. How to be a just person just doesn't come off on, well, they probably have some, but don't believe them. Because, um, these are hard questions having to do with morals and situations and intentions and absolute goods and so forth. And that brings me to the Christian anthropology, um, which, which Paul mentioned. Um, and particularly what Jesus reveals to us about being human. Jesus is fully human and without sin. He is not bad. So if we look at what Jesus says and does and is, we learn how to be human in the community that we're in because Jesus founds the community of the church. Um, so Jesus is part of this community and we have to learn from it. Um, and to try and understand what this justice is and Catholic social teaching is very much involved in this, I'm gonna talk about six words um, and anyone who reads my book will notice a very strong similarity to the first chapter of that book here because I've tried to get a sense of anthropology of what it means to be a just human being um, so that we can apply it to the questions of the modern world. And as you listen to my description, try and think about the, this, uh, the, these six words, try and think about um, how they apply to the problems we have, to that despair that I mentioned, that sense of being has been lost of us I mentioned at the beginning.
So the first one I want, first of my six words is love. Justice is built out of love. My grandsons loved their mother before they were born, and I hope they will love each other forever. But love is much more than between mothers and fathers and children, between husbands and wives, or sexual or romantic love. It's both an attitude and an offer. It's the earnest desire for the good of the beloved. That's the attitude. And it's the offer to unite my good as the lover with the good of the beloved. And exactly to the extent that I give someone less than the total gift of love, say I try to frighten him or her, or try to get more from him or her than I give her, exactly to that extent that I give less than I can, that I love less than I can, I am less just as a human being. I'm less human, really, because Jesus gives everything. That's our model, gives himself. Notice the giving, love and giving come together. And my second word after love is gift. To be truly just to my neighbor, that I must love her. And to love her, I must offer her as much of myself as a gift as I can. And gift is a, another one of these words that has a kind of drift of meaning. You might think, does that mean I have to wrap up presents for my neighbor every day? And, you know, today here's a pot and here's some jam and, and so forth. No, obviously not. The idea is that my promotion of his or her gift cannot merely be kind thoughts. It cannot merely be something that I want to get something back from her. But it has to take the form uh, in this world of an actual gift, something that I give up of myself in order to be united with the beloved. Words, deeds, also non-deeds, things I don't do that might hurt her or might separate her from, from me and perhaps the odd pot of jam also. Now, you might be a little worried here that we need gifts. Um, people often think of justice as being fairness. The 20th century philosopher John Rawls said he wanted to describe justice as fairness. So why am I coming out with gift? Well, to start with and really to finish with, because Jesus gives himself when we are still sinners he comes and loves us, and that's our model. But there's also a psychology here, part of this Christian anthropology, is that because we're bad, we don't see straight. And our notion of fair is very likely, in fact, certainly uh, going to be distorted. Um, so what I think is fair is going to be based on my understanding of the situation. But the truth is that my understanding of the situation is going to be biased in ways that make it unfair from the perspective of other people. I can't see other people the same way that I see myself, and I can't see the way myself, the way other people see me. And so for justice to work, I have to go well beyond fairness, just as Jesus goes well beyond fairness. I have to try and understand the other person in the way that Jesus understands him in loving him, with loving him or her or me to the point of death, death, to taking on human sin. So um, one might say we will never fully outgrow um, my grandson's sense that what is fair is ice cream every day. In fact, what is fair is getting all the attention in the world all the time. Um, and 
the person that always helps me with this is Saint-Thérèse of Lisieux, the beginning of the 20th century, um, and I'm going to paraphrase her here, which is that if you look at humans, we're such a moral mess that, um, that anything other than mercy, than gift, than the un unmerited gift, um, anything other than mercy isn't really fair to us because God can see us as we really are. It's not really just treat us with what the world calls respite. Um, so here we have this tension. We're a moral mess, to use my paraphrase of Therese, but we're also still special. We're made in God's image, uh, as it says in the creation story in Genesis. And we have this great value just for being humans. To be a human being is to be extra valued, as it were. And this is this tremendous paradox of humanity. And it is ultimately the tremendous paradox that we want to live in our societies and our communities. Um, and the word that I'm gonna use, which is one that was used already, is dignity. We have this dignity that we need to respect in ourselves, in each other, and we need to build communities which respect that dignity. When we have, we're always in a community, so it's not a matter of building them. We need, in a sense, from nothing. We need to make them, shape them, reshape them, reform them to protect this great dignity, this worth, this value in God's eyes. And how do we do that? How do we protect dignity? Well, I'm going to put two words together, my fourth and fifth words. So we have love, gift, dignity. And the fourth and fifth words are charity and sacrifice. Um, now, you, those people who are thinking about Latin will know that charity comes from caritas, which is one of the words for love. Um, so you may say I'm repeating myself, but I am in a way. But, you know, repeating love words, well, any husband or wife will tell you it doesn't get boring that fast. Um, so, but I'm not really repeating myself because charity has come to mean something rather specific. It's the act of love for the people who are less able, the least able to return the gifts that I give them. It's charity to give money to the poor, to give comfort to the unpleasant, to help the hopeless and the helpless, to give kindness to our people, to people who are trying to persecute us or persecute me or kill me. It's a kind of extreme love probably seen things like extreme sports. You know, you run for 30 kilometers and then swim for 30 kilometers. This is like a moral extreme sport. Um, it's a way of showing this person that you can, who seems to be so different. He's hating me. He's unpleasant. He's boring. He can't talk very well. You see this person who is, seems so distant and, and different even hostile, as actually another person with the same, exactly the same human dignity as you. And that is going to be how we give this gift of love. Charity doesn't have to be heroic. There's grand gestures, of course, but again, St. Therese said that the greatest challenge is often in very little things. Am I charitable when I say, for example, to use examples that will come up in social teaching, am I charitable if I um, ask for a raise, knowing if I think about it, that if I have a raise and someone else won't have one, and perhaps that's not really a charitable desire. Am I thinking of the other person? 
If I get a bargain when I shop, I go to Primark and I get clothes for less. Remember, the money I pay is ultimately the salary someone receives. So charity make, will help us ask hard questions of what I want. Um, and charity brings me to the fifth word, as I mentioned, which is sacrifice. Because to actually love people who are so difficult to love, who are so apparently distant in one way or another, I'm going to have to give up on things, give things to them directly, or give things about myself to God. I will make them, I will offer them as a sacrifice. They will become sacred in some way because I'm giving them up. The things may be goods, they may be time, it may be energy, attention, it may be affection, but I will make this kind of sacrifice if I need to, to, to give the gifts that I need to give. Um, and it's hard work, of course, making sacrifices. One of my great moral, it's not in my book, but I think it's just the most important moral principles, is if being good was easy, more people would do it. So I've, I've given you five words, and my sixth word I've also given you, and I've mentioned it several times, which is community. We are always members of many communities. And to be just as an individual, as a person, um, because the person is the outward facing to the community, we make this distinction. Um, it helps if the community that we live in is supporting us in our justice, in our just being. It should encourage and embody all the five other five words. It should be love, not fear, not power or pleasure or convenience or efficiency that guides the rules and rewards and punishments in our society. It should be that our relations are based on gifts, not on a narrow vision of fairness. We can give and expect to receive, but we should each each and always try to give more than we, selfish as we are, think is fair. And we should accept less than we, selfish as we are, think is fair. And in a just community, dignity of every member, from the unborn child to the moribund old person, every member, from the richest to the poorest, every member, woman and man, old member and new, of whatever community we're in, the dignity of each and every one should be accepted, as appreciated unquestioningly. And in this, in a just community, the least receive the most, that's charity, while those who have given, who, who given up what they have for those who lack, that's sacrifice. And that's what we should have. So how do we do this in the modern world? And that's the, the last and take up the rest of my time here, basically. Um, we live in societies that are affluent, very rich in this country by historic standards, and are just, are, are, and are secular, I'm sorry, they are not just, we're worrying about that in a second. They're secular, um, that is to say, there's not a lot of religion. Are they just though? Do they promote love, gift, support dignity? Do they promote charity and welcome sacrifice? And to the extent that they don't, and that's quite a large extent, what can we as individuals, as persons, as Christians, as members of the communities that we're in, as churches, as nations, what can we do to become more just? Which of course is to become more what we are, more being. Um, and um, it's a little bit hard to answer this question. That's why there's a long 
Christian Catholic social teaching and lots of people thinking about it. Obviously, Christians are Catholics. Um, but um, I, it's important to try and, and, and frame the question by thinking about to what extent is our society uh, just? And to what extent does the lack of faith, the lack of practice in religion, um, influence the ways that we are unjust and just. Now, I'm a believing Christian. I mentioned I'm a convert of many, many years ago. Um, and I believe that that's central. And so that's going to be in the background of what I'm about to say. But I think it's important to start by not condemning the modern world. It's very tempting to say, look, we're godless people, we're selfish, we're materialist. And... Um, as mentioned, the technocratic paradigm, we somehow think about the world in a very unimaginative, unholy way. If we can't build these cathedrals to God, we, we just build large office buildings or sports stadiums. So there's something wrong, and we're going to talk about that. But I think it's very important to start by thinking about um, what we're trying to do and how well we do it. Um, I'm going to just give you a few examples here. Most importantly, I'm just going to point out that our lives are in so many ways in this modern secular world better than the lives that anyone lived beforehand. We live on average much longer, much healthier, and much richer, more fulfilled lives in many dimensions than had ever been expected or even dreamt as possible in many of these dimensions by people um, before the modern age. Um, and one shouldn't just dismiss that. It's very important. Um, and who does that? How does it work? Well, you could give a long list of the things that we can do, that children don't die anymore, we're better nourished, we have universal schooling, we have near universal literacy, we have airplanes, we have police, we have um, clean water, we have lots of books we can read, we have all sorts of good things. How does it work? Well, I think that we have to give a lot of thanks to what I'm gonna call tonight, I don't call this in the book, the complex. It's the large state business institutional complex. There are a bunch of them, but they're all kind of merged together. Um, and I don't mean this in some sort of conspiratorial way. It's just the way the world is. Uh, every age has its ruling and guiding structures. And ours is this very complex, um, comp so I'm gonna call it a complex, of different organizations with different rules and different purposes that work very closely together. What does it have in it? It has our governments with all as the political government we think of, but it's, it's the administrative state that does much of the work. It's the agencies and rules and budgets and systems and bureaucracies. Um, and then there's the businesses in what we sometimes very inaccurately call the free market. Um, and we often think, I mean, there's a lot of political and ideology about state and market being opposed, but in practice, they work very closely together, the business and the government. They're more like, say, twin brothers who run a company together and sometimes they have fights, but you think of them more as friends than as enemies. Um, and this complex is not just state and market, though. It has um, universities, 
to a large extent what's left of the churches as part of this complex, but also charities, media, think tanks, lots of different stuff is in there working together, some people advising, some people guiding, some people setting rules, some people implementing, but all in these very organized structures with very uh, set goals that are good goals, mostly, at least some, to feed the hungry, to clothe the poor, to help the sick become healthy, to keep the healthy from becoming sick, to spread knowledge. Who could object? When Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you, in a material sense, that's no longer true in rich countries and increasingly not true in poor countries. It's a remarkable accomplishment. Um, And so um, these are not trivial accomplishments. Um, and, and that's really important. And if you were to explain to, you know, uh, someone from the 17th century, if you could go back and say, this is what's going to happen, she would say, I don't believe you. And if you were able to persuade her that actually you can fly around the world in five hours and people don't arrest you all the time and so forth, um, she would say, but surely there's some downside. There's some, you must be paying with it somehow. There must be slavery or um, misery or something. And you could answer quite honestly. You could say, well, there are a lot of big and personal bureaucracies. That's the complex. And there's a sort of feeling that seems to be very widespread that life isn't very fair. And, you know, a kind of attitude of some sort that, that you know, people don't like and There's also environmental damage. You might also add a little less honestly, and we're working on these problems. You know, the bureaucracies, we're making them more streamlined and more fair and more open and transparent. We're getting new rules that will make them more just. And, um, and, you know, the environment, we've got um, technologies that we're going to help make it solve those problems. What about that attitude that a medieval or 17th century woman might ask? Um, and we might say, hmm, well, the complex is working on that too. We've got antidepressants and in the United States, we've legalized marijuana. Um, but that's really where the crux is here. There's something somehow inhuman, not just um, about the way that we feel the world works in spite of, even with, or even in some way perhaps because of these systems that make the world so good, they somehow ignore and sometimes even attack human dignity. Um, one of the ways we can say this is that there's a kind of calculation. I mentioned that the way that people use rational these days is different from the rational of wonder. We have a rational choice theory in economics, which means we calculate down to the penny and put values on the future that are related to the present by using numbers. That's not dignified. That's not the way we are to be being human. It's a mean calculation, not justice. So what's gone wrong? Well, before I say try and give a little explanation, I want to give two examples. One of them, the first one's very controversial, which is what I call an attack on human dignity during the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020. Um, now, opinions are pretty sharp on this. Um, I am a Catholic now arguing with the Pope who doesn't agree with me here. 
no, I should say it the other way around. I don't agree with the Pope. I respectfully differ in my views from the Holy Father. Um, but even now, one can say, um, without getting into all the details, that almost everyone now thinks we shouldn't have locked down or closed the schools um, in this country for a few months, in some countries for longer, in the U.S. in some cases for a couple of years. Um, but what happened? Well, the complex in some way came to a unanimous decision that the well-being of the community, as it saw it, was more important than the well-being of children because it was well known that children in our society, in our culture, in the ways that our communities work, if they don't go to school, they don't learn, or they learn much less, and their psychological development is stunted because they don't just play with each other. In fact, they weren't allowed to. They lose their social life. There was a lack of charity here. Um, a lack of willingness to love people who might, by showing them this love, these children, they might be dangerous, but we decided not to do it. But even if you think everything was fine, all these decisions were the necessary decisions, just think about how easily this agenda was set by the complex, not from below, but from above, and how few people worried about the breaking up of normal lives. Um, and the lives of love and of gift, whether what that would do to the social ties that allow us the fullness of life, that allow us to thrive. And you might wonder about these compulsory sacrifices that were demanded of us, not asked, but demanded, and how they were promoted with messages of fear. Look him in the eyes, they had these ads with people dying. Fear and guilt, not out of love, or care so much, but out of fear. And how I mentioned the children, but also the very old people in care homes, the dying, the lonely, the possible victims of abuse, the people who are the most vulnerable, the ones who most, who, for whom charity is crucial. Um, and we didn't take care of them, or we didn't think of them very hard. Um, and so this, to me, is an example of how all the good things that we're doing, somehow when it comes to a hard choice, we make a choice that's not human in the fullness of sense. And we make it not from below what the Catholic social teaching calls subsidiarity, trying to make it at the lowest possible level. Um, we make it from the top. And the politicians asked for the scientists and no one seemed to worry about whether what the scientists said was just. Scientists aren't really experts in justice. They should have asked some other people. Um, so I think there's something deeply wrong. It's not that there's these bureaucracies are wrong. As I say, they do very good things. It's not even that they're impersonal. You need them to be somewhat impersonal to do those good things. It's the way that they were so easily made to be unjust. The way that the, the police system, which is supposed to protect us, was so easily turned to try and restrain us in ways that were not obviously for good. And the healthcare system, one can say quite a lot about. And then second example is less controversial. Well, in a way it's even more controversial, which is the welfare state. If you think about the way that works in this country, the government takes about 20% of all the money that's produced 
um, from people via shopping and via income taxes and various other things. So it takes that 20% and then it gives it back to people. It doesn't give it back to the same people who paid it at the same time. It takes from the rich and gives to the poor, takes from the haves and gives to the haves-nots, more or less. Um, it's a great big system, 20%, one out of five pounds that we spend. And that's not all. There's another 20%, so we're up to two out of five, that it takes from us and gives to us, but not in the form of money, but in the form of services of healthcare and education, also police and military and so forth. So four out of 10 of the pounds that go through the economy, go through the government in this gigantic, that standard welfare state. Now, welfare states, as I said, have done wonderful things by any standard. If you look back at the, that, when that poor person, that person, that woman we were talking to in the 17th century, and you would see that the poor are much better treated than they were in her, her time. They're fed and clothed. The prisons, which are mostly filled with poor people, um, aren't much, they're not great. They're terrible in some ways, but they're a lot nicer than they were in the 17th century. And with a bit of paperwork, um, the poor can gain the access to very well-trained social workers, um, care workers, and healthcare professionals. You do have to fill out some forms, but um, that access is available to anyone in need. And yet, and yet, that paperwork, the bureaucracies, the nationally standardized rules, the replacement of loving, if perhaps not always competent, family members with trained strangers who care for you but have night shifts or day shifts and annual leave, the hospitals that are farther away from your home, but the care is better, but it's harder to love the, the ill person. Something is lost in this switch into the welfare state, into this giant helpful bureaucracy. What's lost? Well, welfare states leave little and sometimes no room for local support, for neighbors helping neighbors. Um, you know, yeah, we help each other, but then we call social services if things get tough. And when things get tough is really when charity works. And it won't always work perfectly, but it won't be mediocre in the sense of distant, the sense of not being loving, not being a gift that bureaucracies of care always are. Um, the, uh, the great American social activist, Dorothy Day, a wonderful Catholic, um, who I hope will be canonized sometime, she used to say that people, instead of turning to their neighbors, they turn to what she called the holy mother of the state. And I think there's a lot to that. It's a lot easier to answer a long, even a, a long questionnaire than to try and help your neighbor who is difficult. And then a, the, the second example, one example from the welfare state that I think surprises people when I talk about it is old age. Um, I'm a recipient of an old age in a state pension here, so I know I, I am talking not my own book here, as it were, but I think about it quite a lot. It's wonderful in a way, you know? There used to be tremendous amount of really desperate poverty among those old people whose children didn't love them and care for them as they should, or whose children were dead, um, or whatever. Um, and uh, um, we don't have that anymore. And in fact, the burden of taking care of parents is spread more widely because people who don't have any children um, or any living parents um, 
they they're they're still in the system. So, um, you know, if if you have one child and he has to take care of two parents and someone else has eight children, and so they're only taking care of a quarter of a parent each, then financially, monetarily, the, the single child gets a bad deal, and the one with eight kids gets a much better deal. The eight kids get a big better deal because they have much less obligation. This spreads it out much more fairly. Everyone feels much better. And everyone feels, you know, better off. And the parents also say, um, thanks to this pension, I don't have to be a burden on my children. But maybe it's good to be a burden on your children. Maybe the sacrifices you've helped ask them to make and they should make are good for them. And maybe even when they don't make those sacrifices, the moral drama that they're going through is important to help them and you to make the sacrifice to be better people, to be more human. And that doesn't happen. Um, and indeed, the pension system encourages young people not to have children, which they're doing in vast numbers or have very few children. Why do I need children? When I'm too old, the state, holy mother, the state will take care of me. She'll feed me and keep me warm. Um, and so basically the pension system, a good thing, tends to weaken ties family ties. It tends to break communities. It tends to be against love. So you get the idea. This complex, big government, big business, powerful institutions has developed systems that do many seriously good things, but leave the human beings who are enhanced and protected feeling and being deprived of some of the very basic community that they need to live justly as human beings. Living under and inside this complex, it's easy to end up feeling just barely human, just human, merely human. Indeed, it's hard not to. And so what happens? The response to this being human, the wrong kind of barely human, the wrong kind of just being. Well, we have all these things that I was start hinting at. Um, anxiety, depression, the fear of commitment, despair, anger, addiction, crime. Um, and um, there's also a political response, a communal political response is to cling to something inside the complex that somehow offers or seems to offer some kind of community. So we have totalitarian states or even the science. I trust in science. I believe in science, as they said in the COVID era, like a religion or the great leader, anything, anyone that can offer some kind of apparent respect for our dignity, some way of being human that we can belong to and feel that we're being dignified. That's all wrong. It's all wrong. There has to be a better way. And what is it? Well, as a Christian, I think I have the answer. I think that we have to live our religion to start with, and it's going to overflow, just like God's being overflows into us in creation, our religion should overflow into the world. So we should be better Christians, better in the sense of loving. We need to become better at accepting and expressing the love of God, the love of God that God gives us, the love of God that we give to God by loving our neighbor. How in this contemporary world do we do this? Well, one thing we should think about is our first temptation is always going to be to think like the complex thinks because we live 
and move and have our being in this complex. So we're going to, it's uh, the water we swim in. Um, and so we're going to have to, uh, um, you know, the first thing we'll think of is we'll have, have a sort of dignity project. We'll have action plans, KPIs, key performance indicators for those of you who have been blessedly spared that part of the world. We'll have plans, we'll have assessments and so forth. And that way we can, you know, as they say these days, we can deliver, we'll deliver more love. And not only that, but we'll avoid scandals. And we hate scandals. We can scale up. Um, okay, like it's not a bad thing. Um, the complex, those many of these kinds of techniques are very helpful and will we want to use. Many of them come out of the Christian tradition. The first great bureaucracies, well, the first ones were in the Roman law, but the ones that we inherit were from the Christian church. Um, but it's still the wrong, as it were, the wrong reflex. And this is the technocratic paradigm. It's hard to unframe ourselves out of this way of thinking. It's a way of thinking, not just about technology, but about how you solve problems, how you build communities. Um, and really, it's not that hard to design good organizations once you get going. That is to say, what's hard, especially in our society, is to give, to love, to love to the point of charity and sacrifice. And the Catholic social teaching gives a phrase, he's going to talk about the preferential option for the poor. Find the people who need love most, whose dignity has been most injured, and give them the most love and the most dignity. Now, preferential option for the poor makes you, of course, think of the economically poor. Um, but in our cities, in England and Britain and Europe and all the developed countries, there are some really poor people economically, but there are a lot more people who, um, it's not their problem isn't material things. The welfare state takes care of that. Their poverty is spiritual. They're the ones who don't find any meaning, any purpose, any, any, their love is, is fleeting and doesn't give, bring them anything that we would think of or want to think of as love. So to live justly, truly justly, to give fully, we must find and comfort those people, the ones without hope, the ones whose spirits have been crushed rather than freed by the complex, the people whose lives are disordered in some very basic way, in their families, and their health, and their minds. And we must not classify them as identity group, mentally ill, the troubled that way. We must affirm them, each one, each person, person by person, as human being, family by family, street by street, city by city. And you might, to close, you might say, well, that's really nice, Edward, lovely impassioned speech. Is it going to work, though? Is it going to succeed? You might not think it's a good speech. That's another problem. But um, I want to say um, it depends. What do you mean by success? Um, I don't think the complex is going to change in a hurry. For one thing, it does too much good. For another, we are all ensnared in its ways and its values. But that's not what we need for, by success, not in this life. Um, what we can understand, if we can understand that our own being human, our human being a human being, is actually an expression of God's love. And if we can share that love more widely with our 
our communities, within our communities, from family upward, then our hearts and our souls and our churches can come aligned with dignity and justice. Yes, that will be a success. Thank you. That was a wonderful lecture from Edward Haddis. If you enjoyed it as much as I did, please consider rating this episode in your podcast app. This will really help other people to find it. And please do share it with friends who you think would enjoy it as well. I'd like to thank Edward for talking about what it means to be a human being. At a time like this, we need to remember our identity in God and think about what it means to be human. I hope you enjoy listening to the other lectures in the series too. My name is Jenny Sinclair, founder and director of Together for the Common Good. I'd love it if you would explore our other work too, including our sister podcast, Leaving Egypt, with my good friend Alan Roxborough, where we explore what it means to be God's people in times of unravelling. You can find it where you're listening to this podcast right now, or you can join our community at leavingegyptpodcast.substack.com. You can find our other work at togetherforthecommongood.co.uk. Thank you for listening. God bless and goodbye for now.